Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Today, I am beyond excited to be joined by one of the world's most prominent wildlife filmmakers and presenters, Gordon Buchanan. Gordon has been filming wild and wonderful creatures in remote areas of the planet for over 30 years, capturing film across every continent apart from Antarctica. I feel like his face is ubiquitous on our TV screens here in the UK. There is just always a channel showing one of his many captivating and award-winning wildlife documentaries from The Cheetah Family and Me and Snow Cats and Me to Animals with Cameras and Into the Wild. I spoke to Gordon last week. The sound is a little bit echoey. I'm afraid we joked that we could say that he was talking to us from a cave somewhere in the wilderness, but he was actually at his home in Glasgow. (laughs) And uh, this episode, though, is really one of my very favorites. I'm often asked who is the nicest person I've interviewed for the podcast. And to be honest, all my guests have been so lovely in their own ways but Gordon is just so so delightful I'm his new biggest fan so his travel diaries take us from his childhood growing up on the remote Scottish island of Mull to his first job in Sierra Leone close encounters with wolves in the Arctic and discovering a new species of giant rat in Papua New Guinea that and so much more coming up so let's get started Gordon Buchanan, welcome to The Travel Diaries. I feel like this has been a long time coming. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. And just as you're back from an amazing looking trip in Scotland, I mean, you are in Scotland now, of course, it's where you live, but um, to the Isle of Mull, it looked beautiful. How was it? Yeah, it was, the the weather has been exceptional. (laughs) Uh, And to, to go to, you know, for me, one of the most beautiful parts of the, the world to go to the west coast of Scotland and spend five days as I did, you know, exploring places that, you know, a, a place that I grew up and um, places that I've, you know, I've, I've thoroughly explored, but to sort of still see more and learn more and just rejoice in in the natural world. It was really, yeah, it was such, you know, a special five days. And obviously the weather does make a huge, huge difference. Um, and for, for finding animals, it helps as well, because when it's windy and rainy, a lot of animals don't tend to do that much. And if you're out at sea looking for marine life, when you've got five foot waves, it makes it quite difficult to find mm-hmm. a little sort of fin of a dolphin that's only in less than a foot, <laughs> foot high up out of the water. I mean, I know that you've interacted with pretty much every animal on the planet, but that is just something about dolphins, isn't there? I mean, is there anything better than being followed by a pod of dolphins when you're out on the water? They're just such wonderful animals. I think what makes it better, as I realised on this trip, um, was we were on a a tour boat out of of Tobermory. So there was a good 40, 50 people on that and loads of kids, little kids kids um and there was a one little girl that her mum had said to me she goes oh, she's desperate to see a dolphin this is before we had the dolphin encounter and I had a couple of days previously had taken 
a half decent photo of a dolphin. I showed her this photo of the little girl and she was like, oh, wow, wow, that's amazing. And, and then half an hour later, there was 200 dolphins. And for a good 40 minutes to an hour, surrounded. And this little girl and her sister were just staring over the, the front of the boat, just watching this amazing. amazing show of dolphins. And everybody on the boat, you know, at the end of the, the trip, just all these happy, smiling faces. So, the, yeah, one thing better than being surrounded by dolphins is being with people that, that really are experiencing are, it yeah, too. Experiencing yeah. it, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. And as you mentioned, you grew up on the Isle of Mull. I mean, so I have listeners all around the world who won't know much about it. It looks like an extraordinary place. Can you help bring it to life? What was it like spending your childhood there? Yeah, for me, Isle of Mull is it's a paradise. It is stunningly beautiful. Um, it's an island off the west coast of Scotland. It's got, I think, 360 miles of, of coastline. So it's quite sort of rugged and indented and there's lots of sea locks that come in. But as you drive around the island, there's a huge variety of different habitats. There's some really mountainous bits. There's moorland. There's some beautiful uh, big white sandy beaches. And there's rugged coastline um, and lots and lots of of wildlife. So it is, given that I've spent the last 30 years travelling around the world, you know, fortunate enough to go to some of the most special places and wild places, Mull is right up there it is just one of the best places on on the planet um and probably one of the best well actually certainly in the uk you know wildlife mecca um what kind so, of yeah. wildlife would you go there to see um lots of otters the kind of otter population is pretty much sort of maybe at saturation point and because you've got so much coastline you have this sort of you know lots of habitat for for otters a lot of river, otters that you get on rivers and freshwater they tend to be nocturnal but on mull they pretty active you know, active throughout the, the day so it really depends on you know what they've caught so they'll happily feed in the middle of the day or happily go at, at night time but oh that's so amazing because they're so elusive normally aren't they yeah they're really hard I mean the river Kelvin runs through the west end of Glasgow close to where I live and um people have seen otters on that on that river and I've gone out many many times especially over the last year and a half with having a lot more time I'm at, and I've still haven't seen uh, yeah, a, really? a, Glas a Glaswegian otter yet. <laughs> <laughs> I saw one just now, actually, when we were wow. up in Scotland. We were staying near to Aileen Dolan Castle on mm -hmm. the west coast. And at around 10.30 at night, we went down to the lock that uh, overlooks the castle. And the castle was all floodlit and the uh, water was this inky blue and an otter just floated past on its back. Wow. Oh, it gives me shivers yeah. just thinking about it. It's <laughs> amazing, isn't it, how travel memories involving animals or involving wildlife yeah. really are the most special. Definitely. I think I've, I've always realised that something happens when you're, when you're watching wildlife, but particularly over the last year and a half, and I've heard more and more people talking about about sort of being immersed in nature and paying attention to sort of wild things and yeah. just paying attention to the seasons. And it just it just basically gives you an opportunity to step out of your human shoes and become you know engaged and engrossed in something that's nothing to do with you, nothing to do with your problems. It is sort of yeah, watching 
the wild world and yes yeah, being a little sort of little I always think it's a holiday from being human and having human human problems and that's why it is endlessly fascinating it's not the kind of thing that you would think well I've kind of seen enough I've seen <laughs> yeah. enough otters now and yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, just the other day up in Mall and I was sitting what and I've seen otters many many times before and I was you know as excited now actually maybe more so actually I kind of I think of value as I've got older sort of value all of these experiences um uh, a lot more that's so nice well we are going to go on a journey through the seven chapters of your life's travel diaries and looking at all the places that you filmed and worked there's a lot of places to choose from so I know it's going to be tough to pick but um we're going to start with chapter one which is your earliest childhood travel memory um, as we said, growing up on the Isle of Mull, there was lots to explore um, in and around Tobermory where I where I lived. We didn't have a, a car when we were kids, so we, we didn't travel very far at all. All the sort of travel that we did, we did go on holidays, and um, so all the traveling we did was sort of on foot. Mm-hmm. As you get older, with each year, I suppose, you're like, okay, we'll go a little bit further sort of down the coast. We'll go to that, that hill that's a little bit further away. But when I was about nine or ten, my best friend his parents had a little boat uh, and they said you want to come away for a few days in in the boat and for me that was kind of one of my first proper holidays holidays as a kid although we were just sort of walking down the main street getting on a boat and heading out to sea uh, it was a chance to travel further than I had um, on the Isle of Mull and we went away for a couple of couple of days and one of the days we went to the Isle of Lunga it's part of the Treshnish Isles and the Treshnish Isles are this extraordinary archipelago off the west coast of of Mull. It's a violent chain that stretches out and Lunga is a huge seabird colony. Um, Mm -hmm. Thousands and thousands of of seabirds. You've got razorbills and guillemots and shags and you can see gannets. They don't nest on the island, but you see gannets offshore. But the big sort of most numerous bird there are the puffins. And as a child of nine or 10 years old, it was like being transported it was sort of like kind of a Conan Doyle sort of lost world that you're entering because I didn't realize that you could have a, a, a natural spectacle like that in in Scotland I'd sort of you know loved watching wildlife documentaries and sort of watching that the old sort of Attenborough documentaries and he'd travel to the Galapagos or somewhere that we have that abundance of of life and animals that you can get very very close to so when we set foot on Lunga and climbed up onto the cliffs and there were puffins everywhere and you mm. could sit just a meter from these gorgeous little birds uh, and they happily just do their puffiny puffiny thing and there's birds wheeling overhead so it was as an experience for a child it was really overwhelming um but at the time I just thought I didn't I didn't know that this was on our doorstep I didn't know that you could sort of you know have this abundance of of life mm-hmm. and something that is you know was so inspiring I suppose you're just sort of half a day journey from the town where I'd lived. It's interesting that the place that you choose as well that first comes to mind is associated with nature I mean could would you say that your passion for wildlife and the environment and nature dates back then to that point? 
I would say so. I actually, I always sort of cite the fact that I grew up on the Isle of Mull as of, you know, the foregone, it became a foregone conclusion, conclusion that I was going to end up doing this job. But okay. that experience um, on the Treasure Shiles, yeah, that was, was really important because I think I got such a kind of rush from being there and being close to those animals. And I didn't have a camera. I wasn't a sort of junior naturalist. I just, something about that, experience really struck a chord within me and it's not mm-hmm. until I say it now that I think well gosh that was I've now spent 30 years getting very very close to, to wild animals and that was the that was the first time that it, it happened so yeah maybe without that experience that would have been a little sort of a real sliding door yeah, I could have done something completely different but yeah it's it's the easiest one that that question when you ask me that's what my mind goes to. And I can't mm-hmm. think of it sort of any other travel experience as a kid that sort of moved me in that way or was, or was, was as important, really. Now, those islands, islands that you stay on, or are they ones that you just visit for the day? There, originally, there was a local population there, um, but they would have probably sort of in the Highland Clearances sort of moved, moved off. So there's an old village up there um, on, on Lunga. Years later, I think sort of when we were teenagers... I hadn't been back to to Lunga um, for maybe sort of five or six years. Mm -hmm. And there was this sort of draw. And I suppose as kids, we were like, we have to go back there. Me and my friend was like, we have to go back to Lunga. We have to go back to Lunga. Um, And then eventually when we were old enough to go by ourselves, we got my my friend's uncle, who was a fisherman, to drop us off uh, on Lunga with tents and water uh, and all of our supplies. And we spent sort of four or five days there. And I've gone back many times since then I think sort of through my teens late yeah teens and early 20s I went back and sort of camped a couple of times because it was not only was it a you know as magical experience you know being a bit older there's something about it that sort of catapulted me back to that first time that I, that I visited um and yeah I was there again last week oh, really? uh, and it's a yeah, it's a very very special place in a global context um mm. yeah Sounds wonderful. One to take note of. Mm. Well, moving on to chapter two, that is the first place that you fell in love with. Oh, I'm sort of trying to sort of pick places that aren't the Isle of Mull. We've talked enough about about Mull and that's sort of, that's a kind of a given that I fell, I fell in love with that place. How lovely to fall in love with the place that you grew up in there. Yeah, I think um, I hard to my wife always says when people ask you about kind of most special places don't keep saying mull but (laughs) (laughs) um but let's yeah let's move on from mull I think one of the place that I I completely fell in love with was the arctic the high arctic I for years um hadn't I'd spent a lot of time filming in the in the tropics and then sort of wasn't really until the last 15 years I started sort of filming in more temperate climates and in 2014 I had this opportunity to go to Ellesmere Island up in the Canadian Arctic to film wolves and a friend of mine a colleague had been there before and he said I'm not sure you you're going to like Ellesmere Island and I said why is that it's just just quite monotonous it's not a very beautiful place um, because it's just rolling tundra and I was okay so I sort of lowered my expectations but when I got there I was just blown away by this place that it was 
you know, one of the wildest places on the planet. I think importantly, it's a part of the world that, although obviously there are changes happening there due to climate change, but you don't, there's no roads, there's no buildings, there are no people. It's mm-hmm. so high up, there's no, it's not on any flight paths. So you don't see kind of vapor trails or planes going over the top. So when you stand out there on the tundra, there's nothing but tundra and ice between you and the North Pole. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was struck it when I was there and I sort of left the rest of the team and I was a little bit further north and I thought, I'm, I could be the sort of most, nor- most northerly person on this planet at, the, at this moment. And the clarity of the, the, the air is such that you, you, look at a, you look at a mountain off in the distance and you think, okay, that's maybe like a, a thousand, you know, thousand feet tall and maybe five miles away. And you look at a map and you realize it's 45 miles away and it's a towering, you know, huge, huge mountain. It's, um, it plays, it's a place that plays tricks on you because the geology and that sort of the form of the tundra isn't something that you can have any comparison too, because the land looks very different. Because it's land that's been shaped. Once the ice melts, this landscape has been shaped by you know the thousands of years of of freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing. So when you look at a landscape, it's it looks quite alien. And because there's no mm-hmm. trees, there's no sense of like how far this of that next ridge is. And yeah. um, it play, it plays tricks on you. So you be like, okay, I'm going to go to that. I'm going to that distant hilltop, and you start walking. And 10 minutes later, you're there. And I thought, I thought it was much <laughs> further away. And on other occasions, yeah. I'm going to go to that hilltop. And five hours later, you're still walking in that one, one direction. But the most special thing there, it, you know, those, all the wildlife, but the wolves particularly, as I said, because there are no people there, the, the animals that live there have no fear of, of human beings. They've got no preconceived ideas of how dangerous we can, we can mm-hmm. be. Um, so, yeah, to be in an extraordinary place... Uh, and to have close encounters with a pack of wolves so close that literally they would be sniffing your boots as you're sitting you're sitting there so as close as close to a wild wild wolf as you can really yeah. ever get that's so interesting that they came up really close that they weren't fearful of humans i would have thought that it would be the other way around that because they'd never seen a human that they'd be even more scared yeah so they came right up close it must have been that must have been so thrilling yeah well on the very very first day we had all of our kits we had to be so remote we had to get choppered in so all of our equipment was in the chopper unloaded everything the chopper powered up and as it disappeared just over the little the the, the ridge in front of me came this big white wolf that started walking straight towards us and I thought this is obviously a a blind wolf because why (laughs) would it be walking straight towards us and it obviously heard us and smelt us and thought okay what and they so these wolves had never seen people before and that was its response there was yeah there wasn't even sort of um any real caution I think they're they're the top they're the top predator on Ellesmere Island so they have nothing to fear so they these animals have been born raised knowing that they literally are top dogs so it's like well what have I got to fear it's like, yeah. uh, and it walked up and had a good sniff around this big pile of equipment and I was blown away and then over yes. it's a course of weeks and months we spent you know every single day with those wolves and they got used to us being around and that sort of yeah they were as curious about us as, as we were about about them um hmm. So what a magical yeah, that's experience. Hard, it's hard, very, very hard to beat somewhere like like that. Um, given with 
you know, I'd been to Yellowstone before and I, there, what was considered a, a close encounter with a wolf was a wolf maybe on 200 meters away, uh, whereas in Ellesmere Island, you know, these animals just sort of have no, no fear of, of people. And that's sort of, yeah. There must be so few places left like that as well on the planet the opportunity to go somewhere like that yeah really this sort of you can go to the sort of you know deepest darkest rainforest and you still you're aware of of humanity mm. um so i sort of yeah that was working up there in 2014 was as i was saying earlier on about being immersed in nature and having a holiday you know an encounter and experience with a wild animal it's like a holiday from being a, a human all your problems it was sort of kind of forgetting about all of humanity it's sort of yeah. you know, you're up there people have not made their mark visible mark on that part of our, our planet um and yeah when you combine that with this whole range of extraordinary creatures that live up there year round it sort of makes for quite a heady mix amazing well just going back to the beginning of your career and your journey to becoming a cameraman I mean that really happened by chance didn't it yeah t- completely um I was working in a restaurant when I was still at school. When I was 15, I thought I'd better, better try and get a job and get some cash. And the restaurant was called The Captain's Table. And Anne Gordon, who owned The Captain's Table, her husband was a wildlife cameraman. And I, I didn't know him personally, but I knew what he did. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. But it was through working with Anne that I kind of learned more about Nick's job and and I was sort of a year later when I was 16 and really didn't have a clue what I was going to do in life. I thought that sounds like the most amazing job and got quite mm-hmm. focused. I thought, okay, I've got to, you know, I've got to find a job. I've sort of really should have some kind of career. So I thought maybe that, I mean, well, because Nick himself, you know, he left school without any qualifications. He had sort of done a whole range of different jobs. He'd been an estate agent he owned a chip shop for years and uh, and then he kind of sort of found his way into wildlife filmmaking. Um, so I thought, well, I'll chat to Nick about it and just sort of see what advice he has that can hopefully take me in that direction. Um, and just when I was 17, um, I helped Nick out with various things at home and sort of dead keen and sort of, you know, he said, can you run down to the post office and you know post this for me? He didn't mm-hmm. literally mean, can you run down? But I thought right okay here's a job I think being at school and not being not being I was going to say particularly academic not being academic at all (laughs) and not being engaged by school Mm -hmm. and I think the teachers probably thought I was just a numpty so when Nick said run down to the post office that's what I did I ran down to the post office and ran back up and he was like have you been I was like yeah and then sort of that pretty much sort of over the course of weeks I was doing all these little jobs for him and he got this project in Sierra Leone and he needed a kind of, he needed an assistant. And he said, would you be interested in being my assistant in, in Sierra Leone for a year and a half? Um, and he said, obviously, you'll have to, well, two things, you'll have to leave school um, and you need to pass your driving test. So I was like, well, leaving school is not a problem at all. And I'm <laughs> pretty sure I'll be able to pass my driving test. So I did. And that was, that was it. So as soon as you know, that had happened. He said, you've got the job. So I, wow. I literally went into, went into school the next day. And instead of taking a, a left to go to, you know, sort of 
geography lesson. I went right to the headmaster's office and said, that's me, I'm, I'm leaving. Where are you going? I thought you were going to say, I went right to Sierra Leone. (laughs) I'm off to Sierra Leone. It was like, bye. Um, And that was was it, really. It was sort of being in the right place at the right time and that's which is a secret to filming filming wildlife is sort of you've got to be in the right place at the right time Serendipity. and yeah sort of so grateful to, to Nick for that opportunity because it was a huge risk taking you know a kid um off to you know the other side of the world and and, and it was really an intense an intense time so I mean you had this wild lifestyle on this beautiful Scottish island and then I mean, what was it like? Was that the first time that you got on a plane as well? Yeah, it was the first time I'd been on a plane. The first time I'd, I'd, I'd been to Germany on a school trip. So that's abroad. But um, we went on a bus, a two-day two bus journey to um, to Germany. But it was kind of similar to home. Um, so I mean, what a culture shock for that to be the first place you'd ever really travel to and to spend such a long period of time there. I mean, what was it like? Yeah, I mean, there's not culture shock doesn't really cover it. I wasn't, Nick, Nick had traveled extensively around the, the world at that point, And he was sort of, he spent a lot of time trying to prepare me mentally for going to this strange place. And when I got there, nothing, nothing can, and especially back then, you know, that was in it was January the 4th, 1990 that I we left there wasn't sort of people just didn't have that same knowledge of other parts of the the world and as a kid you know I wasn't probably even engaged on things that were you know if these if countries like that popped up in the news I was outside I was never sitting in watching the news so it was uh, akin to being dropped on another planet it would be you know if if it had been if they'd taken me to Mars that would have been less strange than being going to Sierra Leone <laughs> because it's yeah yeah culturally um extraordinary you've got some beautiful rainforest it's it's africa the temperature's different the food's different everything everything about that whole experience was utterly different from anything that i'd ever uh, experienced before mm. what were you actually going there to film we were based on an island in the middle of a river in the sort of south of the, the country there was um Kind of some intact rainforest, but this island <clears throat> was it was a division between two chiefdoms, and there'd always been dispute over who actually owned which tribe owned the um or which chief owned the island. So subsequently it wasn't farmed or logged or inhabited. Mm-hmm. And on this island there was you know, towering rainforest, but lots and lots of of animals. It was you know, probably still is one of the most the sort of densely densest populations of primates in the world. So there was lots of different species of monkeys and chimpanzees and a whole mm. range of different sort of you know, unusual creatures that that lived there. And yeah, wow. we set set up a tented camp, and that's where I was for a year and a half. I came home halfway through, but yeah, my life from the age seventeen to eighteen and a half was in a little tent in the jungle. Unbelievable. And I mean, did you fall in love with that career path from that point onwards? No, quite the opposite. I was, yeah, part of me now would love to go back and experience that or have that same experience as an adult because I think I would have valued it a lot more. But at 17, I was desperately homesick. Mm -hmm. I think from the moment, well, the moment I stepped off the plane and had this sort of, you know, into this other world, I thought I've made a big mistake this is all too different really yeah for me. I mean, it must have been so overwhelming 
and very aware that you know at that stage of life 17 you've got you know sort of full independence from your your parents and all my sort of mates were about to go off to to college in Glasgow and they'd got a shared flat together and we'd sort of go out and go into parties and just sort of being being 17 I was really homesick so it's pre-internet days and pre-sat phone satellite phone days so to communicate it'd be this sort of two months sort of cycle I'd write a letter once a month, Nick would go to Freetown, post all of our, all of our letters, pick up any any letters that had been sent to us, and bring them back. And then, so you the communication. I mean, it's a like to think back that I could pick up a text, pick up a phone, and text anyone anywhere in the world that has a phone signal and have a conversation back and forward with them. Whereas this was sort of you know every two months you could get a little message out to the. <laughs> to planet Earth. Oh, yeah, I mean, that must have been so hard. But I mean, thank goodness you carried on because that was the start of us being able to see your incredible work. I mean, chapter three is the place that you learned the most about yourself. It seems like you learned obviously a huge amount about yourself there. Well, that's sort of, yes, a nice segue because I think it was Sierra Leone um, at that age, really, you know, it's such a cliche, but sort of arrived there as a boy and left a man. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. What I particularly love about a lot of wildlife documentaries now is that we're taken behind the camera. We see the work that goes into shooting shows like yours and the 
extreme patience that's required. It's, you know, it's not an easy job at all. It's not like the wildlife just turn up on day one and there you go on to the next. It's a huge test of patience, of your resilience. And, you know, we see that story, don't we, of waiting, waiting, and then finally it emerges. So with that in mind, you know, what has been the most rewarding payoff? What has been the most rewarding shot to capture? Yeah, the, the, the patience is sort of, you know, I, I don't find that a challenge to sit for hours and days or, or, or weeks waiting for something to happen because as the years have gone on, I've sort of, you know, I, I've got this sense, sort of gut feeling that I know when I'm in the right place mm-hmm. and I certainly know when I'm not in the right place. Um, and, you know, if I feel that I'm in the right place, it is just a matter of time, just sort of wait. You're kind of, you're kind of daydreaming. You've got this opportunity to sit by yourself uh, and have these sort of, you know, mindful experiences when you're watching the way that the light changes you're watching you're looking able to tune into tiny details of sort of you know an insect landing on you know on a flower or or sort of a bird flying off in the distance it's just how the temperature changes and the clouds roll in and roll out so Mm -hmm. if you are interested in the natural world it's it's easy it's easy to sit for for you know that time but in mumbai um Oh gosh, this is sort of going to six, maybe six years ago. And I had, had been sent to India to try and film these urban leopards. So there's a national park, um, Sanjay Gandhi National Park, which is sort of used to be beside Mumbai, but Mumbai has grown up around this little island of, of green. And there are leopards and a whole range of other wildlife living there. And the producer for the second Planet Earth 2 had sent me there to try and get shots of these urban leopards and he had said this is it's it's going to be incredibly challenging because leopards are notoriously elusive he said but Mm. do not come home if you don't get at least one shot of a leopard with the city behind it he said that is sort of like you're going to have to go to sort of witness relocation that you just you have to get a shot of that and we can make it we can make it work yeah no pressure Uh, and on the very first night I set up my hide and I had a good look at the, the area and I'd filmed leopards a lot before and there's sort of obviously, you know, field craft that comes into play. And I thought, I'm going to put the hide here for the first night and see how it goes. And on the very first night, I think it was an hour after after dark, this leopard came out of the forest and I hit record and it walked through my frame with these apartment blocks and the city lights behind and the leopard walked through the frame. So I was like, I can go home now. No, that, I thought, well, that, that's the shot. That I, so I, I will be able to go home uh, eventually. But then I spent the next 30 nights, every single night, just sitting up, getting closer and closer to getting the, the Holy Grail, which was a hunt, hunting sequence with these leopards. And I, and I got it. And that was really oh, rewarding amazing. because often with with wildlife filmmaking, you never meet your expectations. You always think, okay, you're going for the the Holy Grail and you always sort of more often than not fall fall short and you leave thinking well it would have been good if we had just one extra go at it or if, if this had happened or if the lighting had been different with, with those leopards knowing how challenging it was going to be at the end of the 30 days I sort of packed everything up and well there we go did it um, uh, and I think that is the longest that I've spent 
just focused on on sort of one one species um mm-hmm. yeah the danger is you spend too long by yourself that you you're not really desperate to get <laughs> can rejoin rejoin society so at the end of this month I was like oh no it's just back to being with being with people <laughs> well moving on to chapter four that is your all-time favorite destination I know you've been to all continents apart from Antarctica so you know I know it must be incredibly hard to pick but which comes to mind first a place that I really fell in love with was the Great Bear Rainforest in Canada (laughs) we were there for a couple of weeks trying to film wolves and it it wasn't, it was, yeah, it wasn't that successful. We eventually saw, we did see some wolves uh, at the end of the trip, but we were based on a boat just working our way through that part of the world. Anyone that sort of doesn't know where the Great Bay Rainforest is, sort of, it's off the West Coast, so it's kind of British Columbia. Um, I didn't know anything about that area, so I hadn't researched it. I knew that we were going to film wolves, but I didn't, you know, hadn't Googled it. I hadn't sort of looked at any images of this place. And it is a really beautifully wild part of, mm. of Canada. Um, lots of um, sort of, I suppose, fjords and inlets and sort of sea locks and these river channels that come way, way, way inland huge amounts of of forest and it does it's got that kind of lost world uh-huh. feel about it and there's you know there's kind of destruction and devastation and sort of you know humanity around that area but for most of those two weeks we were again in this sort of a part of the world that was so wild that we didn't see you don't see the, the signs of people and you don't see that sort of destruction in your immediate surroundings um and again didn't bump into anyone once we actually left the little um town so we were just exploring and seeing you know seeing whales seeing wolves seeing eagles seeing bears it was at the time of the, the salmon the salmon run um so the just it, it was yeah getting a sense of what the world was like before humans started monkeying with with mm. everything um so we're so used to sort of the planet as it is now and and you know we don't realize and we live in our towns and cities that you know at one time glasgow at one time london these were yeah. wild wild places full of of wild animals and you have to kind of go off the beaten path to 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 find places like that in in the modern world and and these very special special places still still exist and the great bear rainforest again yeah it's sort of a, a wild place since i left there I've, I've been trying to find a way to get to get back you know a lot of the times you you go to a place and think okay well i'm happy to go go home um but that was a place i was i thought i'm happy to go home but i will definitely i'll definitely be back here so in the years of immediately after I was like trying to get back and trying to find some project that would take me back and it's still I haven't I haven't been there so that's yeah coming up for 10 years now but it's yeah google google the great bear rainforest yeah. and do an image search and you get an idea of what the, what the place is like chapter five is your hidden gem an undiscovered place that you love I mean that to me sounds like the ultimate hidden gem I, I mean you must have discovered so many over the years what was your pick for your hidden gem well, that's that is kind of a very hard one because practically every everywhere that I am sent through work, every place that I gravitate towards in you know 
out of my own interest are all hidden gems. So <clears throat> the River Kelvin, that for me is a is a is a hidden gem. Loch Lomond, it's not particularly hidden, um, but that's a place that I I go to and just sort of love because it's it's one of these places that never fails to sort of engage you. But I think a good candidate or the strongest candidate for my hidden gem is um, Mount Busavi in Papua New Guinea. Oh, wow. We went there for an expedition. Um, it was part of the Lost Land series. So it was part of the series called Lost Land of the Volcano. And, and Mount Busavi is an ancient volcano that um, is completely covered in, in rainforest. It's in a remote part of, of Papua New Guinea. Um, this sort of, you look, it's a classic volcano shape. So huge crater very very steep slopes the ridge itself is there's sort of it's very difficult to get into it and um, so subsequently few communities and tribal groups that live in that area didn't go there um, it's too steep-sided and um, once you climbed up it, you know if they did they said that they did occasionally climb up to the ridge but the last thing they wanted to do after two days schlepping through the jungle was actually start climbing down into this huge crater. When I mean huge, it's sort of miles and miles across. And you look down from the edge and it's forest and rivers running through. And part of the expedition was exploring that part of Papua New Guinea. But the, the end, the final sort of 10 days was a sort of a little satellite expedition into the crater of the volcano. So we went there not knowing what to expect and again it was a lost a lost world a place where there were no people there's a theme here that all these favorite mm. places of, yeah. <laughs> like, there's nobody there that's why I like it but yeah we we um had to be yeah chopper then sort of found a little clearing where you could land the chopper with all the equipment that we needed all of our camping equipment and we started to explore and not only did we find the animals that we expected to find there, we found a whole range of, of new species oh, so of animals exciting. that had never, had never been discovered. So, Tell me about some of the species that you found. Well, there was a few, gen, you know, even now there are, you can find new species of, there are new species of in, insects, new species of little mammals, new species of bats that deep are, are found. Well. Deep sea. Yeah, there's, a, there's sort of, you know, our world is sort of far from fully explored. Um, and that list of, you know, what do we share this planet with is grows. Mm. In Busavi, we found the a new species, which was the world's largest species of rat. So <laughs> it is, sort of, you know, a metre and a half, long this huge oh my god and, it, and it's a, it looks like a rat it's not sort of if there's no scale you just think it was sort of you know it does look unusual its features are sort of pretty enlarged but this animal is humongous maybe yeah i think meter and a half maybe two meters sort of from nose to to tail and um uh, uh, was it terrifying no because well those the animals there because there are no people there, these those animals don't have any any fear of of people, and like I was saying with the with the wolves, you know that is a sort of you know common theme with animals that don't have any experience of of people. I mean, as as humans, we're predisposed to think that rats are just you know they're not that lovely, are they? I mean, although of course some people have them as pets, but yeah. I mean the idea of a two meter one. So like, for example, I'm arachnophobic and then sometimes 
I watch nature documentaries and they show like a meter long spider and I think I'd have a heart attack like that would be the end (laughs) of me so have you know there any animals that you've actually encountered that you've been like oh my god this is the most terrifying thing I've ever seen well I actually I did used to have a slight irrational fear of of rats um so yeah there was one of those creatures that I was never that that keen on I think when I was a kid he was slightly traumatized we'd we had, my friend had some rabbits and there was a plank of wood or sort of a board in his rabbit enclosure. And this rabbit had given birth under this, this board. Uh, and he, he said, after school, we'll go up and look at these baby rabbits, tiny little things. And, and Nori and I went up, went into the rabbit enclosure and pulled up this board. And there had been this massacre. Uh, a rat had got in and had killed all these baby oh, no. rabbits. And the rat was still there. And it got a shock as we lifted up the, the board. And it was a fairly small enclosure with sort of chicken wire in it. And this rat tried to tried to get out and started leaping kind of really high in the air, sort of like bouncing off the fence and sort of leaping oh. past us as, as little kids. It's horrible. Oh, horrible. Um, so yeah, that slightly, slightly scarred me. But then, yeah, my wounds were healed when we you know, encountered this, giant rat that was so docile you could sit right beside it and sort of tickle its whiskers I don't know what you are but yeah you're not you're not you're not doing any harm Uh, and all those animals sort of in the crater were yeah just you could walk literally walk right right up to them um how amazing um so yeah that was an extraordinary place and we you've been so lucky to go to a place that not that few people go to that that no one went to you know there's a kind of you know there's only the group of us that that team that went into the crater that um have been there I'm not sure if anyone's actually been back since there so yeah some places in the world you think okay so few people must have been on this ridge or walked through this part of the forest. But in Busavi, you knew that every footstep you take, you took, that no one had, had been there before. Uh, what a thrill. First humans to explore that, that crater. What an unforgettable experience. A complete contrast then, chapter six is your worst travel experience. That is the, that is the, the, the trickiest trickiest one I think really but there has to be one and there is there is there is one I I've been lucky in that over the years all of these places that I've gone to you know one thing that can spoil any experience it's not it's not the weather it's not the insects it's not the food it's the people you're with so as I was saying right at the very beginning, you know, to be on that boat surrounded by dolphins and people that are rejoicing in that experience, mm. that was amazing. Mm. Uh, and they were a lovely group of people. But, you know, there are some people that are just a right pain in the backside. And I've been occasionally on trips when in amazing parts, really amazing parts of the world. And that's sort of those exceptional individuals <laughs> that seem to kind of... Kind of rejoice in negativity or just a, sort of yeah that's mainly it. I kind of can forgive lots of sort of you know odd behavior but people that are 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 constantly negative I really struggle with but I think the worst travel experience um you know on one hand it was an amazing an amazing experience but on the other hand it was really tough I went to Russia back in 2008 and the plan was to find um try and look for 
Amur tigers, so Siberian tigers. Mm -hmm. So I hadn't been to Russia before. I didn't really know what to expect. And we were over um, in the far east of, of Russia, and it was completely different from anywhere that I'd been before. Um, you know, the, the sort of towns and cities of, you know, quite, quite grim sort of, sort of like Soviet influence mm -hmm. of how the cities kind of, you know, grew there was there's nothing nothing is aesthetically beautiful about you know the, the towns and everything was everything was really quite grim mm -hmm. and I spent a month traveling around that part of of Russia when you get out into the countryside it is really really beautiful but at no point in this on this in this month did I see a tiger and as the month as the days went on i thought this is really not going to to happen it's like looking for a needle in a haystack there's so few i mean technology now just sort of you know um 12 years on um there were things equipment that we could have taken with us that would have probably heightened our, our chances but this was really kind of old-fashioned just get out there and just keep searching keep searching and we was we were staying in some some real hovel some places we stayed in little kind of um cottages hunters hunters um cabins out in the woods and they were lovely but a lot of the time we were staying in a kind of russia's equivalent of a motel so they're really really <laughs> shabby places and all of that all of that i could have dealt with but there was only i was only with one other person uh, and he was a miserable sod. <laughs> he was just nothing, 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 oh, nothing God. was, you could make him, we could make him happy. So I spent a month of my life looking, it would be like looking for the Yeti. I think you're never going to find this. Staying in sort of pretty grim accommodation. And most of the time he just sort of, I think he was smoking 50 fags a day. So in the day, and we were driving for a long periods of time and he was chain smoking oh, no. and I said can you open the window but it was minus 25 I said no I'm not going to open the window so that as a travel experience was yeah was, and your lungs aged as well yeah being stuck in stuck in a yeah a four-wheel drive in a fairly grim part of Russia with a chain smoker knowing that we were not going to see the animal that they were we were after did you yeah. find it did you find it in the end no, no, oh how not, disappointing no. No, we got fairly close, but not, yeah, no, no coconut. <laughs> I'm sure you ask this a lot, but when we watch your programs, you get extremely close physically to quote unquote dangerous wild animals. And in your commentary, you might say, you know, your heart's racing, that it's a nerve wracking experience. And, and then you get to know how the animal works and see it less in that light, less of a threat. But I mean, have you had any close encounters with an animal that you've been shooting or a wild animal where you feel like it was kind of tipping the balance of being actually really scary um in the in the sort of early days of my career I didn't know as much and I was sort of not as risk averse as I am now um so I would get myself into these situations that I wouldn't risk assess um that situation so I'd go off into the forest happily by myself in places where there are big potentially dangerous animals and not not ever think okay well if I bump into an elephant if I bump into a bear what am I going to do and I'm so fortunate that I kind of got away you got through that sort of cavalier period of my life without anything sort of too bad happening but yeah at that time 
one of the most terrifying things. I'd been walking through the forest one morning, climbed up onto the sand dunes to get a, a view out to sea. This is in, in uh, Yala National Park in, in um, Sri Lanka. And I climbed onto the sand dunes and I was looking out to sea and the sun was just coming up and it was, I hadn't looked around me and I noticed some elephant prints. And I was like, oh, wow, they look quite fresh. And I looked over and there was this huge bull elephant, maybe just of 20 meters away. And it was standing with sort of in the open beside a bush and I hadn't seen it in my peripheral vision. And I looked over and as I looked over, it didn't realize that I was there and it looked at me. And I thought, okay, if I just hold my nerve, it'll probably just go back to doing what it's doing. But elephants are, you know, as amazing creatures as they are, they they can be, if they've had bad experiences with people, they can be very, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this bull elephant, as it turned out, had sort of had some bad experiences, encounters with with people and had been sort of shot at and had sort of spears thrown at it. So Mm -hmm. it did not like people. And when it saw me, it just shook its head a couple of times. And what I should have done was sort of slowly back away. But I thought it'll probably turn tail and disappear. And instead, it just ran straight at me. And I thought, right, okay. I'd been told that if you just don't budge, an elephant will actually stop its charge. It'll skid to a halt. Um, So I thought, I'll try that and see what happens. And this elephant just covered the ground very, very quickly. And it got to within maybe sort of eight meters of me. I thought, bugger this. (laughs) I just tore off down the sand dunes and made for cover and I could I looked over my shoulder and the elephant was right there running after me and I fortunately got into the tree line and started zigzagging through the trees and I could hear the elephant sort of crashing through the the bush behind me but it kind of got confused and because I was zigzagging I managed to get away so that you know that that was a a, a very heart-in-mouth experience a lucky escape um and I've been chased by at the same on the same project, wandering through the forest and bumping into bear sloth bears and sloth bears, um, despite their name, are not particularly slothful. slothful. When they, <laughs> yeah, when they yeah they, they sort of some a human being that happens on them in the forest, and I've been chased by them a couple of times. But so yeah, there's something about you. Know, you think of the fears that human beings have. You know, fear of losing your job, fear of sort of you know, you know, your house being broken into. But really, fear, form as it is within people, is a sort of primal response <laughs> to to threat. Yeah, uh, and that is sort of threat from bigger things that are going to eat you or squash you. Um, so there's yeah, there's that. That's there's the a ultimate threat. fight or flight. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, a big a big animal chasing you through the forest. You're you're kind of going way back in time to sort of you know doing what humans do best, which is just run run away from things. Yeah. So we are on to the final chapter of your travel diary. So that's chapter seven, which is the destination that's at the top of your bucket list. But I wondered if I could actually make it a dual pronged answer and ask mm-hmm. not only the destination but also the animal that you maybe long to film that you haven't yet captured that would also be at the top of your bucket list i had yeah i have been to india and africa and south america and north america many times um been to australasia and so i've been to every continent uh in the world but for antarctica um so i yeah i love the arctic um and i know that i would love Antarctica and I've had 
various opportunities over the years to, to go there, but because it takes such a long time to get there and when the kids were young, I didn't want to have to go away for a prolonged period, period of time. So you can't really do it in a sort of, you can't do it in a two-week trip or a three-week trip. You need to go down there and to see wildlife and film, you have to be there for quite a, an extended period of time. So mm-hmm. I would love to travel down to the bottom of our planet, to Antarctica, and I'd love to get into underwater with the leopard seals. I've seen that sequences that have been shot before and these extraordinary animals that you can have very, very close encounters with. There's this sort of fear factor as well because they are, they're big, they're scary, they are potentially dangerous, um, but they're very, very, very beautiful. So yeah, if I could do anything, if I was to chuck something into that bucket, mm-hmm. Antarctica to get under the ice um, with leopard seals that would be it oh incredible thank you so much gordon buchanan those were your travel diaries it has been wonderful getting to hear them thank you thank you so much it's been a real pleasure Oh, that was Gordon Buchanan. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you want to hear more from Gordon, you're in luck because he has a tour coming up in January and February next year. Gordon Buchanan, 30 Years in the Wild, the anniversary tour with dates all across the UK. Tickets are available online at gordon-buchanan.co.uk. And thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. It's really easy to do that. On Apple, they've just changed it so that you follow rather than subscribe by pressing the plus sign in the top right-hand corner of the app. I would also be so grateful if you could leave a rating or a review. It really helps other people to discover the podcast. To find out who's joining me next week, follow me on Instagram at Holly Rubenstein. I'd love to hear from you. And if you can't wait until then, there's all of seasons one, two, three and four to catch up on. Thanks again. Take care and I'll be back with you next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.